Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Business Growth Advantage. I'm very excited this week to be here with my new friend, John Williamson. John says that he has this skill called emotional lock picking. So we're going to break down what that means. I'm really excited for this. Number one, John and I met a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and we really hit off. I'm really excited for him to share his expertise with everybody today. But also, honestly, you guys, I'm still recovering from a cold, and I couldn't have asked for a better, more engaging guest to just really take the reins. So, John, uh, thanks for doing more of the talking for me this episode, my man. No pressure. No pressure, and, Joey. And, and I know you have such a fascinating, almost magician-like quality to what you do. Can you give everybody the backstory of, well, but before you get into what emotional lockpicking is, just your own career yeah. history and, and how you created this? First off, Joey, thank you ever so much for uh, getting me in today so we can have this chat because you know, I, I love what you do. I've been seeing what you've done. I've just gone through a whole bunch of your interviews. Oh. You're a good interviewer. If you ever <laughs> get fed up with doing that law stuff, just become a podcast interviewer or something like that. You'll do great. <laughs> Thanks, man. My only disappointment is there's no baseball cap today. You know what? Here I'm you like, go. <laughs> Now that looks better. better. We were talking before, just before we start here, and and we got into this whole conversation about emotional lock picking. And and the thing you picked up on, you know, in terms of the promo for what we're going to talk about today was it's all about making selling superfluous. Mm. Now that some of you are going to recognize that you're going to go, hang on a minute, making selling superfluous. I've heard that before. And you probably have if you've been around, if if you're a man of certain age like me and you've read some of the old timer books on sales and management and all that kind of stuff, you'll be aware of a guy called Peter Drucker, Mm -hmm. who many regard as the, I don't know, the father of management consultant, really. I mean, that that guy was one clever dude, like really clever. And anybody who's doing anything today stood on his shoulders to get there, basically. And I remember reading something uh, in my early 20s when I was like uh, trying to educate myself, self-educate myself into business management. And I read a book, and in it he said that the whole purpose of marketing is, is to make selling superfluous. The whole point of marketing is to make selling superfluous. The whole point of marketing is make selling superfluous. Now, here's what I think. I think thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, or potentially millions of people saw that quote and went, uh-huh, that's amazing. And then they read the rest of the book, and they went on as business as normal. Mm-hmm. But I'm not like that. I'm just weird, yeah? So what happens is uh, I've got a whole stack of books by the side of me. You can't actually see them, but they're all there. And, and here's what happens. I, I will get a book, and I will stop at the first thing that I think is interesting or relevant or piques my interest, and that's it. I'm gone. I can't mm-hmm. do anything else until I've beaten that, until I've found out, does that work? What does it mean? How do I apply it? And I've so I've spent my whole life like applying stuff, like finding out really cool stuff, and then applying it. 
And so I sat back and went, what the heck does that even mean? Like superfluous. So first off, I had to go get a dictionary and find out what superfluous means, because that's real old school English, isn't it, right? Yeah. So I'm like, I get there and it goes, unnecessary, making selling unnecessary. Mm. Wow. Okay. Now that was news to me, Joe, because I'm, I'm going to make an admission here. For the first seven years of my working career, 17 to 24, I sold life insurance. That was it. I was really? out, there, out there in the big wide world selling life insurance commission only. And fortuitously, they decided to make uh, the, the selling of life insurance a profession, which meant you had to start taking exams and things. And I went, I don't really fancy doing that. So instead, is <laughs> what I will do. I will become a management consultant instead. Mm. Now, you should be thinking, looking at me, particularly as a lawyer type, you should be looking to saying, you can't just wander around the country calling yourself a management consultant and reinventing yourself like that. And guess what? That's exactly what people told me. Like to my face, like I'd go to business meetings and I'd stand there in my, my, my brand new suit, custom made because I need to look the part. And I had my Mont Blanc pen in the pocket. And honestly, I was 24, 25. I looked like I was 17 still. I barely started shaving. I was skinny as a rake. And all I got was resistance. Like people say, what do you do? And I, management consultant. And that was just an invitation for them to pick me to pieces and to prove that I should not be in that room and I should mm. not be saying that and I shouldn't be in front of people like that. As it happened, I actually was pretty good at doing that kind of stuff because for that previous seven years, if I ever found a client, like a business client, and I wanted to sell them key man insurance and they'd say, we can't really afford it at the moment. I say, well, what problems are you facing that's not giving you the ability to find profit to buy something as necessary as this? And we talk about the problem and I come up with solutions and I go back six months later and they buy the policy. So I was already doing this work of helping people solve problems and fix things. I just wasn't qualified. I didn't mm. have a business degree. I didn't even have a business card. Like, where's your business card? Ah, uh, they're at the printers. But you can only get away with that for so long, right? Sure. So here's what happened. Here's what brought this making selling superfluous to life for me. I got myself a toothache like really bad. Mm -hmm. And so it was on the morning of the very next networking event I was supposed to go to. I um, made an emergency appointment at my dentist to, to get in and I got there and uh, I had to sit in the waiting room and I'm idling my time away. And I noticed there's a copy of the Reader's Digest on the table next to me. And I just scanned down the column and it said at the bottom, IQ test, page 77. And I looked around and nobody was watching. So I thought, why not? So I pick up the Reader's Digest and I go to page 77 and I, I fill in all the things and it gives me a score at the end. And guess what, Joey? Oh, no. It turns out I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> I'd been wandering around the world thinking I was some kind of a genius, like I was the next one. And you know what? The, the test said no. So I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. That was a bit of a dent in my ego that morning. Anyway, I get into the dentist chair and he start, He sticks the Novocaine in and he's doing all his work on me. And this is rattling around in my head. That I'm not quite as smart as I thought I was. And I'm like, oh, geez. And then all of a sudden it hit me. And I went, if I'm not quite as smart as I think I am, maybe I'm thinking that everybody else out there is smarter than they actually are. Mm. Maybe I'm just giving them too much credit. Maybe I'm trying too hard. Maybe I'm trying too hard to impress. And I went... I wonder. So I come out of the chair and I get in my car, I drive to the networking meeting. I'm a little bit late. I walk in and the guy's been introducing everybody. It's one of these big round tables. He's been introducing everybody. And I walk in 
And he looks at me and he says, uh, okay, uh, so you eventually got to hear your name and uh, what you do and who you do it for and all that kind of thing. And I went, damn it, I'm just going to try this. And I said, brain for hire. Brain for hire. That's what I said, brain for hire. I didn't say management consult or change consult. I just said brain for hire. And he looked at me and he went, brain for hire. And I went, yeah, brain for hire. He said, what do you mean? And I said, uh, well, it seems to me like everybody in business has problems. And it seems to me that they're all trying to use their common sense to try and solve those those problems. And I've got an alternative form of common sense. Obviously, we've all got our own. And so what I say to people is show me your problem. I'll tell you what common sense approach I use to solving it. If you prefer my common sense over your own common sense, then maybe we can do business together. Wow. And I got this little round of applause. And I'm like, I've not had that before. That's insane. And so by the end of that meeting, three new clients. In the previous six months, I've not even got one client. Mm. And it never changed, never stopped from that from that day forward. And repositioning myself. So the marketing of me, the positioning of me inside their mind, like me thinking about what they needed to hear, me thinking yeah. about how they were going to look at this skinny kid. And you look like I could get away with saying, I've got a form of common sense, which is different than your common sense. So let's look at the two side by side and see which works. Very palatable, very understandable. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, I had this, like, it's almost like this light came out of the sky that day. And I was like, man, this is cool. Like, you know, you, you literally don't have to try that hard. You could drop me in any English-speaking country in the world tomorrow. Uh, I could walk into a networking room and I could have my business started, up, running, and as profitable it was the day before I got dropped off in that new country using that one tiny little thing. Mm. You're stunned. You are stunned, Joey. How long was it to get from that point to really unpacking what emotional lockpicking was and coming up with that terminology? Here's what happened. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff happened along the way, but, you know, I packed a lot of stuff into a very, very short period of time. And I used to do a lot of seminars. And I think, you know, we may or may not have talked about this, but I used to do a lot of unique selling proposition development. So business would come to me and, and they wouldn't have a USP. I mean, who does? Like people just don't have USPs. To this day, people still don't have USPs. Yeah. And so they come to me and, and they, they'd want a unique selling proposition for the business. And, and so I would, I would help them develop that. So I was doing seminars, basically. Back in the day, before webinars, this was like in the 90s or whatever. So I'm out there on the road doing seminars, teaching people about USPs and my unique way of doing it. And people would come up at the end and say, can you help me? I need a USP. And one day this guy walked up to me and he says, can you help me? I don't need a USP. And I'm like, well, you've just sat through an hour and a half of me babbling on about USPs and giving you some of the most amazing technology processes for doing it ever. And now you're walking up to me and saying, can you help me? I've already got a USP. So I said, tell me more. And so the guy says, well, we sell kitchens. We remodel people's kitchens in their homes. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, so what's your USP? And he says, we have more kitchens on display in our showroom than almost anybody else in the united kingdom hmm. we have 32 kitchens full-size kitchens can you imagine what that looks like joey man that is huge like, i'm not talking about just like a basin and a sink and like that's what that looks i'm talking about the whole thing each time sure. yeah it's like a maze to get through the place you get lost okay and so i'm like wow so how's that going for you and he went 
we thought it'd be a really good idea when we invested all that money to do it. Like, yeah, it just lit, lit us up. That was a perfect idea. And then he says, here's what's happened. So people, they come to us because we've got the biggest choice and that's what we promote and advertise. And they get educated and they discover all the different variations and they, they get ideas and all the rest of it. And they still go and shop against us with all the competition by walking into mm. their shops. And then their shops just use our giant showroom like their own showroom and say, we can do all those doors. We can do all those worktops. We, anything you've seen there, we've got it. Mm. So let's talk about price. Okay. And that's it. It was getting nailed. So they invested all this money, built what admirably could have been a really good USP, like loads of choice. That's been done before, but it was actually backfiring on them. Okay. So I said, okay, so... At that stage, I've been doing some experimentation because I got really into how does language affect people's brains? Like when I said brain for hire, that made people think differently instantly. Same right. job, same outcome, but they just thought differently. Right. So I'm thinking, I'm doing a lot of experimentation. I'm doing a lot of studying into uh, behavioral sciences, behavioral psychology, into you know uh, behavioral economics and all that kind of stuff. Something called psychographics, which was really big back in the 90s. And everyone talks about now, but you know most people are doing it wrong. I, I was studying all that kind of stuff, and I was looking for uh, somewhere to experiment. So I said, how do you feel about me doing an experiment? Not been done before, but you know, you don't venture, you don't gain. So they said, okay, so what does that look like? What do you need to do? And I said, well, I need to speak to six of your best customers. It was a few more than that back in the day, but today it's now six. But I need to speak to some of your best customers. Do you have some customers that you define as being better than others? Like, are they more profitable? Are they better to deal with? Were they less, uh, you know, did they not shop you around on price? Have they referred more people to you later? You know, you tell me what that looks like. Can you give me six? And they went, yeah, sure. Good. I just want to pick up the phone and speak to them. Mm. And they went, okay, fair enough. So they gave me a whole bunch of names. I pick up the phone to speak to these ladies to find out what's going on. Now, with your permission, I'm just going to draw on the board the before and after version of what actually happened here. Okay. Let's do it. So that's all right with you. Let, let me say something before we start here. People perceive me be, to be in marketing, which sort of means they think I can draw. And what you're going to see is not an artist's drawing. So bear with this, Joey. I scroll a lot. And th so don't, don't judge me as well. All good. And if you are tuning into this on our podcast, we'll make sure to have a link in the show notes to the video here where you can follow along. All right. Awesome. Let's see it. Awesome. 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 So um, they show me their existing advert, which pretty much looks like it was actually square, but it looked like <laughs> All right. okay. And then at the top, it had a big sale flash. And then over here, it had a big starburst, 50% off. There, it had a picture of a lady stood in a brand new kitchen saying, look at my new kitchen, I'm so excited. And then there, it was free units, free dishwasher, free fitting, and then a logo. Okay. Now, if we went and looked at 20 adverts for kitchen companies or 20 websites for kitchen companies today, they would all look exactly the same. Hmm. They're all trying to motivate people to want to buy based on previous incentives, discounts, because here's what's happening, and this is super interesting. At any given moment in time, only 3 to 7% of people, only 3%, 3 to 7% of people are buying what you're selling. Mm. It doesn't matter what you're selling. It could be cars, CPA services, it could be kitchens. It doesn't matter. And I know this because in my seminars, I have 100, 500, 1,000 people learn and say, I'm going to do a quick quiz. Who here is thinking about changing their CPA in the next 12 months? 3 to 7% of people put their hand up. Mm. Who's about buying a new car in the next 3 to 7%. So I know this to be true. Wow. At any given moment in time, 
only 3 to 7% of people are buying. Wake up, Facebook. You're delivering your messages to people who aren't interested in buying right now, and I'll prove that to you in a second, mm -hmm. okay? And this is essential for people to understand about today's newfound media and, and how that works. Because here's what's actually happening in the world, okay? People have shopping lists. You've got a shopping list. I've got yeah. a shopping list. It's time and money. We can't buy everything we want. Well, you might be able to, Joey. Successful guy like you. You might be able to buy everything you want to buy in life right now, okay? And because you're such a relaxed, laid-back guy, you've probably got all the time you, you need to do everything you want to do, all the hobbies, all the... If they get, you, you, know you, you see where I'm going. Yeah? You yeah. see where I'm going. We all have shopping lists. And what we do is we prioritize things. We make decisions about what comes first, what's second, what's third, what's fourth. And so what I'm going to share with the emotional lot picking and why this is so effective is that emotional lot picking enables us to take somebody's silent internal shopping list of time or money, whatever it is, and reorder it on the spot with the marketing to get them to put your product or service at number one. Mm. So it's not something they're going to do in six months or two years or three years down the road. It's today. Mm. And this is what differentiate, or this is what makes a big difference with the emotional lock picking. So here's what happens in this instance. I nearly have a heart attack when I see this. I'm like, this is like the exact opposite of what I preach and what I do and all the rest of it. So I'm like, deep breath. I pick up the phone to these ladies and I say, listen, uh, would you mind just giving me 10 or 15 minutes to talk about your recent experience of buying a kitchen? And they're very nice and they're very pleasant. And they say, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but you'll have to be quick because I'm just about to take the kids to school. Or I'm just about to put dinner in the oven or something like that. Joey, an hour later, I'm saying, do you not have kids to put in the oven or something? I can't get these people off the phone. They just want to talk and talk and talk and talk. Like an hour later, we're still there. They want to. Mm. And they're telling me everything about their lives, about their wishes, their dreams. And I'm just there as I'm just listening. And I've learned some, you and I talked about this before, but I've learned some really interesting things about being able to identify people's cognitive biases and to understand what their underlying identities are and to be able to tease out of people what the best version is of themselves, like mm -hmm. what they actually think it is. And so what I'm looking for is, who are you? What makes you tick? And then eventually we get to, what is the emotional decision-making syntax you use to make decisions about buying stuff? Mm. I don't know if you'd know this. I'm, I'm teaching you stock eggs. Just, just go with it for a split second because some people might not. But the subconscious is nothing more than an emotional goal-seeking device. Mm. That's all it does. It's completely irrational. Irrational. It sits in the background guiding us and we think we're making rational decisions all day long and doing what we want to do it gets there a split second beforehand it controls our attitude our behavior everything to one outcome to ensure that its emotional goals are met it's mm. all it does so you've heard people say that people buy an emotion first and then back up the decision right. later with logic so this is what this means okay and so what we've done is go really really deep on this to go okay if that's true which it is I mean, I'm talking to a lawyer. You've seen how irrational oh, yeah. because they don't use the, it's all emotion. It's all driving what, what they do. It's crazy, right? Yep. It's going deep to figure out what that, that stuff looks like. So I'm on the phone to these ladies and they start to say things. They start to tell me stuff. Okay. They'll, and they'll say things like, 
I'd always hated that kitchen since the day I moved in. Mm. Now, I don't really care. Like, I cook a lot, but a kitchen, as long as it's got a hob and an oven, it's got a nice big fridge, and you know, I'm cool. It doesn't have to be anything different. Just, it'll do. Yeah. But they don't. They're using the word hate. Not one of them, two of them, three of them, four of them, five of them. They're all using that same mm. emotive language. They were consistently saying or referring to the old kitchen as her kitchen, the previous mm. owner's kitchen, even though they bought the house <clears throat> seven years before. Yeah. They still refer to it and thought of it as being her kitchen, not my kitchen. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But this is the reality of what you need to know about when you're selling to people is what's actually going inside their head. What is their right, identity? Right. What biases are they using in terms of how they decide what they're going to do? We need to get deep with this. And then I find something really interesting. Almost every single person that buys a kitchen buys it as a direct result of moving home. It doesn't matter whether they buy it seven days after moving home or if it's seven years after moving home. If it's seven days later, then guess what? Kitchens are top of their internal shopping list. They have the money to do it today, so they do it. If it's seven years later, it's because it was number five or seven or nine or 15 on the list because they had other things to do, like buy a new car, send the kids to private school, go on a special vacation. You get my point, yeah? Yep. So they have a mental shopping list, and the subconscious is arranging it based on emotional goals. Yeah. And you know what? This is a sad bit. Most of the time, it's not even your emotional goals. It's somebody else you're trying to please. But I'm just going to put that out there. Sure. In that out there, okay? And so you're saying all this, and I'm wondering what's going to happen for the second. Ah, you want to see it? Yeah, are we good for time? You're going to say all of a sudden we're finished, and I'm going to go. No, we're good. We're good. We're good. (laughs) So here's what happens: I I go away, and bear in mind this is the first time I've ever done this. Okay, so this is like a huge experiment, and since then we've evolved it and evolved it and evolved it and evolved it. But the results are routinely exactly the same. So let me show you what happens. We go back, and I draft up another advert. And it's a little bit different. I'll tell you what the big difference is. Let's deal with the important bit first. The okay. big difference is this one generates 300% more people in the showroom. This new one? Yeah, 300% more people in the showroom. Like, who could not handle or would not like 300% more of anything at the front end of their funnel? Yeah. But get this, super qualified people. And I'll tell you what super qualified looks like in a minute. Most of them, almost all of them, were not in that 3 to 7% of people who woke up this morning wanting to buy a kitchen. Mm. They were in the 93 to 97% of people who'd shifted the decision for six months or 12 months or two years or whatever down the road. Get this. The competition doesn't even know these prospects exist yet. Mm. Because what we're just about to do with this advert is we're going to go into their subconscious get them to reorder the shopping list and move the buying cycle forward in one advert. Okay. <laughs> Your face, Joey. Yeah, like... <laughs> so here's what we do with the advert. Okay. At the top, we have what we call the footballer's wife. Yeah. Footballer's wife's kitchen. So that's like a hundred thousand dollars for the kitchen. Yeah. It's got two double. ovens in it. It's got double okay. draining board. It's got, Things hanging from the ceiling. It's like aspirational, yeah? Okay. That's what it looks like. And then underneath here, it has what we call a that's me statement. 
Can you see mm -hmm. that? Just about a that's me statement. But then underneath here, it's got over 700 words of text and then the logo. Okay. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, do you really need 700 words of text to get somebody into a showroom? No, you don't, but we'll come to that in a second. This advert here, probably got no more than 30 words in it. It's all freebies, mm -hmm. incentives, discounts, deals, because you know yeah. what? That 3 to 7% of people that woke up this morning deciding that they're going to buy a kitchen, they want to see all that because that's what's going to make them make the decision. Right. This advert, it's got no freebies in it, no discounts, no incentives, no nothing, yet it still brings in 300% more people. Mm. So the question in your mind must be, what was the that's me statement, right? Yeah. It's all about the yeah. that's me statement. And so what we do with the, the emotional lockpicking is we take it to that one singular point. What is the that's me statement we need to write so that when the next best customer reads it, they go, that's me. Mm. That's my life. That's my story. Like, how did you know that's where I am? They won't call it a buying cycle, but how do you know that's where I am in my buying cycle? Yeah. Okay? So in this instance, it said, ladies, very obvious call out. Are you fed up living with someone else's kitchen? Mm. Boom. They were literally walking in the showroom and saying, that advert could have been written for me. And she's like sitting there reading the paper. She's not looking at kitchen. So all the other kitchen adverts that week, she's completely missed them. They've gone right overhead. Her reticular activating system is switched off. Mm. But subconsciously, the brain's got that in the list. So when it sees, are you fed up living in somebody else's kitchen? It goes, click, click, were, knock, knock, conscious, pay attention. And it starts the conversation off. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're hitting a whole other group of people whose attention is elsewhere. Mm. Yeah. And they just everybody will say the opposite. Everybody says, don't waste time trying to sell to somebody that's not in the cycle, is not buying, is not pretty. Mm. I, we do the exact opposite. But here's the cheat. We end up speaking to the 93 to 97% of people that everybody else is ignoring and can't reach. Yeah. So on market, when I say we get 300%, actually, that's pretty poor. Because like we've massively increased the potential marketplace. Like right. it's not like if we doubled it or tripled it or quad, you know, we're still way ahead. I guess I'm a bit of a failure when we only generate 300% extra out of that extra 93 mm. to 97%, if that makes sense. But here's something really interesting, Joe, that I didn't share with people for a long time, but I'm, I've started to share it with people recently. So I'll just expand on it very briefly, if that's all right with you. Yeah. You would recognize that as being a headline, right? Mm -hmm. like, headline in your advert on top of your webinar or whatever you're doing you put a headline which is supposed to telegraph a major benefit a promise of some kind of a you know you know life's going to get better um, you'll be able to do this next whatever but it's always it's a promise note for you buy this and there's a promise note so you're going to get somewhere else notice this the that's me statement and 90 percent of the that's me statements we create negative not positive of the ones that that you're company creates yeah negative so ladies are you fed up living with someone else's kitchen that's like man you you think you mm. can sell kitchens saying that stuff was normally they say own oh, no, a brilliant bright new kitchen and, get right. Pictures off. Right. and they're like people like think oh that's what's going to draw them but here's the here's the rub every single person on the planet is more motivated to avoid pain mm. than gain pleasure 
Have you heard yeah. that before? Yeah. I mean, that's a take to that. As a lawyer, you probably see that all the time. People, people will do stuff. That they'll cut the nose off to spite the face. They'll, they'll be completely rational because people are more motivated to get away from something which is unpleasant or, or they don't want to do anymore or whatever. Yeah. Screw the consequences of what happens next. I just want to get away from that. I want some excitement today. Yeah, but you might end up in jail. Ah, screw it. I want to get away from the excitement. It's not that they want to do the exciting thing, like steal the car. They want to get away from the boredom of sitting there and not being somebody, not doing something. Does that make sense? Right. So, so to them, that is the negative issue. And so when I first discovered that years ago, that was another one of those. When I, I read it in a psychology book, people are more motivated to avoid pain than pleasure. I'm like, man, is that true? Like, is that me? Like, and I started to study it and look at it. It's everywhere. It's all around you. It's what controls 90% of people's behavior. Yeah. And so what we do is we reverse engineer it and we go, what do people want to get away from? Mm. What are people stuck with? What are the things which are going to light that fire in, in just one sentence, which are going to get them to literally readjust? So the second sentence in the advert said, ladies, you're fed up living in somebody else's kitchen. A kitchen you inherited when you bought your home. And what do they yeah. say? They go, that's me. They can't help themselves. Yeah. And so the whole of the advert is designed to literally get them to keep saying to themselves, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. And then she nudges her husband in the ribs and she says, we're going to go look at kitchens this week. And he goes, whoa, I thought we was getting a new car in two months. Yeah, he's going. No, no, it's time for the kitchen, please. You know, and so there you go. You go from kitchens at number seven, car at number one, boom. Kitchens now at number one, mm. just like that. Interesting stuff. For more tech savvy or more online businesses, what's the more digital equivalent of this type of an advertisement? Is it ads? Is it just websites? Yeah. Is it everything? It's, it's it starts with the first contact you have with your potential audience. Mm. And that can be anything. So I'll give you an example here, Joey. Like, I'm really into custom motorcycles. Like, I, I love choppers. Harley choppers, that's my thing. I really would really like to get another chop chopper under construction and do something. That, I mean, that'd be really, really cool. I can get, the, I can afford the frame. I've got the massive garage. I've got the room and rust fit. Do you know what I don't have at the moment? Time. Mm. I've got young kids. I've got Josh and I, uh, my, my business partner, Josh Rhodes. A uh, big shout out to Josh Rhodes, actually. He's the hero here, by the way. I'm the, I'm the mouse. <laughs> so we, Josh, we, you and I talked about this before. And uh, like, if I can recommend something to anybody sat out there who's not got where they want to get in life, get yourself a bloody good partner. Like, get yourself a business partner who can bring the yin to your yang or whatever. Because mm -hmm. after 28 years, like, things are with, with Josh are just going like that. And it's simply because he's, he, give, he brings to the table the stuff I don't have. He's brilliant. And so what was we just then? What was I saying? Well, I'm I, sorry. Terry. No, it's okay. But I, as you were talking, I was wondering on this topic of emotional lockpicking, I think that you provide this really helpful perspective on all of this. I think there's a lot of thought around this that people have kind of heard before of, Oh, let's let's find that one thing that will attract people. What's their avatar? You right. Know, what's the psychographic? What do you think are the common mistakes that people make in this kind of larger topic of avatar or choosing your best clients or figuring out what your elevator pitch is? Super interesting thing that I see most people, the biggest mistake I see people making, and, and this is how Josh and I met. Okay, so 
Josh was in a Facebook group and, and I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And he was making some comments and adding some advice and some stuff. And people were ridiculing him and deriding him and saying, you don't know what you're talking about and all the rest of it. And fundamentally, what he was saying was this. The copywriters were all saying, uh, speak to people who haven't bought and find out why they didn't buy and then build an offer around that and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And Josh was saying, nah, speak to people that bought. That's the... And I'm like, you are so on it. Like, I never, ever speak to people that haven't bought. If they haven't got the credit card, I don't care. I'm not mm. looking to convert those people. I'm looking to find out what motivated the people that That's did buy. so buy. good. And that tiny little thing. So I gave him a big slap on the back and said, mate, you are so on the right thing. You just need to continue. And then we jumped on a Zoom call. And, and obviously, we hit it off because we were thinking the same stuff, right? And, yeah. and uh, so then off we go. It was, it was history from that point forward. But that's the biggest mistake I see people making is they pay too much attention to the people that didn't buy. And they're mm. overly concerned, like, oh, man, I had all this traffic. The people didn't buy. And, and, and you know, what can I do to convince them? And, and how can I become more persuasive back to make selling superfluous? Like, I mean, I'm not interested in finding people who need to be pushed over the line. I want to find the people that resonate so strongly with who I am, like yeah. who you are, who the owner of the business is, their values, their orientation towards. I mean, if you look at something like that, what does it say? It says, I understand you. Yeah. You know, the thing that's missing for most people's lives is they don't have enough people around them that understand them or care to listen. Mm. So the minute you project into the marketplace that you have an understanding of that and i mean you've got to do this genuinely like we've mm. in certain instances mm. we've had clients who try to use it as a as a manipulative uh, device and we we always like nah no you, you've you've got to be honest and you've got to have the right values behind this you you've got to deliver through and all that kind of stuff so you can't just use it smoke and mirrors to to get people you, you've got to genuinely follow through on it because you know what those next six best clients and those next six, we go back to them in six months' time and we reevaluate how they've grown and how the message is reconnected with people and how now, what's that? what does that mean? And then it goes on and on. Does that make sense? Yep. It's really, really mm -hmm. good. And thank you, Josh, for the reminder. Earlier, you were talking about how you don't have time. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Josh. See, I need Josh around because I, I just can't think straight. Um, and that's the thing with the bike frame. So the thing is, I just don't have the time. Like, otherwise, I bike. So here's the thing. Do I look at adverts on Facebook for frames and stuff? Yeah, of course I do. Am I members of some Facebook groups that talk about this stuff? Yeah, of course I do. Like I do all the stuff that a prospect, quote unquote, would do, but it's five years down the road, mate. Hmm. So they're shoveling, they're, they're advertising, they're paying good money to reach me. I don't care what the offer says in the, I don't care if it says 50% off. I don't care if it says it's signed by some famous frame maker or whatever. I'm just not in the market. I am up there, emotionally I am. But it's probably number eight or nine on my list at the moment. Mm. So That's something that you really hear people talk about is the the list in your yeah, head. Yeah, and it, it's massive. I just think about lists all, you know, that everybody I'm talking to has a shopping list. And, you know, you got to look at them and say, I need to understand in your shopping list where I fit. Like, because mm. nothing happens until it becomes a priority and it moves to number one. And so the emotional lot picking, basically, you, you might be able to do that on a one-to-one -one basis if you're doing lots of one-to-one -one sales calls and stuff. But this enables you to do it at mass market through advertising, through webinars and stuff like that. You know, you put this, put a that's me statement at the top of your webinar registration page. Boom. Just watch what happens. Completely changes everything. And it changes everything. So I get really passionate about this stuff. But it changes everything, Joey, from, from a number of points. Number one, you do get a lot more registrations. But here's the other thing. People come in, and, and I'm, I'm always saying to people that whenever you engage somebody in the marketplace for the first time, they have a mindset. 
Yeah, they have a state of mind. Like you've got a state of mind right now, which is affected by the time of year. You, you said to me before, you're feeling a bit under the weather with your cold mm -hmm. and stuff. And so you, you have a state of mind at the moment, which is different than it's going to be tomorrow or next Friday or whatever, for all sorts of different reasons. That makes right. sense. It's still Joey. It's still yeah. that fabulous Joey guy. <laughs> but your state of mind changes all the time. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. The singular most important thing you can do is understand that everybody has a state of mind and anticipate that before you start to talk to them about what it is you've got. So mm. if you have a webinar registration page and you use the that's me statement instead of, uh, instead of a headline, you control their state of mind. You yeah. actually set up a state of mind that you want them to have as they're coming in. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. So that lady, when she comes in the kitchen showroom, do you think she has a different state of mind than the person that responds to that advert? Oh, absolutely. She walks in thinking, you know me, you're going to solve my problem. It's my time now. Like life is getting great. Like she walks in with that. This one here, she's been planning for this for two years, getting brochures, going around the showroom. She's getting a bit burnt out with this whole thing. Yeah. Confused and all that kind of stuff. So there's a state of mind which changes. So first thing I had to do here was get the salespeople together and show them how to sell to people in this state of mind. Mm. Make sense now in the times that you've done this that's me statement usually just a, a copy and paste something that some like the actual words that they tell you during an interview those best six clients or are you take all of that together and you really package this it's not just yeah oh that was a really good one-liner let's use it no it, it's never a one-liner and this okay. is where i think i said before you've got to listen between the lines mm. Because they can't exactly tell you what it was they were thinking. There's like that transcript that's inside the head in that thing. So you can get real close to it and you can listen to a version of what it might be. And so here's what happens. We will interview the six people. And then Josh and I, independent of each other, will write dozens of that's me statements. Mm. Dozens. And then we will come back together and we will sell each other on our theory behind what's been going on and we almost like every single time we go and didn't you see and didn't you hear and oh. like we're like like so in the zone with it but josh has got a different style than me he's a different age he's got different experiences you know all that stuff comes into play so then what we do is we, we take those two things and we come to a, an agreement over a composite and uh, we always give the client three three examples to test hmm. so we get as close as we can and then we test. So in that instance there, going back many years, uh, that wasn't the first one out the door. I'll be honest. Okay. I did several to get it out the door. Each one was better than the original advertising. Wow. That was the absolute home, home run winner. Okay. Nowadays, it's, I don't know, 80% of the time we get it right on the day. 20% of the time we have to go to number two or something just to, to fine tune it and test it. Okay. You get pretty close most of the time now. That's, that's great. It's just a bit of experience there, Joey. Someone else has a good question here. What about beyond the that's me statement? That feels top of funnel. What about once they're in the funnel? Are there other? 100%, yeah. So we always supply uh, clients with a briefing document. So the briefing document is really what they should be doing. So we don't write copy anymore. Like mm. we used to write loads of copy. That was a, a big thing of mine and Josh too. But we don't actually do the copy anymore. But what we do is create a briefing document. We do a debrief, which is like a, a recorded session. So it's like, okay, here's your three that's me statements. Here's our conclusions. Here's what we've discovered and found. The clients never see the interviews. 
for a number of different reasons. The, the primary one is that we always say to people we're interviewing, this is 100% confidential. Your stuff will not be fed back directly. You can say or feel anything you want mm. and, and no risk of embarrassment or, you know, whatever type thing. And we stand by that every single time. So we do a video recorded debrief, which explains to them as a composite what we've discovered. Joey, people are always amazed. We tell them what their clients, who their clients are, and they go, no way. Mm. Like, really? Like, I thought I knew my people. And then you actually tell them that subconsciously what's driving their intent and all this fit, and they're like, it makes so much sense, but like, I, I never saw that. That's just yeah. like... Oh, it's not surprising to me at all. I, I can totally see how that would happen. This might be someone else who asks, can you describe your process of creating a that's me statement? What's the blueprint? It sounds like there's a interviews that you have. And we talked before we went live about how you're just, these interviews that you have are, can be so exhausting for you because you're paying so much attention to not just yeah. the words that are being said, but body language yeah. and everything else during the interviews. The singular most important thing I've found, and I'll come back to the blueprint concept in a second, but the single most important thing I've found is this. You're looking for people's reaction. Hmm. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean body language and stuff like that, but you're looking for hmm. when you ask a question or you say, and they have a reaction to it. And so that can be a hundred different things. And it's not always what they say. The what they say is the, the initial mask. It's what they'd like to, you to hear. It's their best version of themselves that they're projecting forward. And so most of my time is spent watching for, if I say this or I say it this way or I re-articulate that, does it change the reaction? Am I hitting a point inside them that they can't control so that they, they have to show a reaction? People can't mask the reactions as easy as they can change the wording. You know, they can think about it in a few seconds. I don't know if you know this, Joey, but the average person speaks at 150 words a minute. The average person wow. thinks at 600 words a minute. Jeez. So if they're thinking at 600 words a minute and you're speaking at 150 words a minute, who are they thinking? Who are they listening to, themselves or you? Themselves, yeah. They're, they're inside all the time. You say something and as the sentence is being constructed, they're already four times further ahead. They're like plotting and scheming. How do I respond to this? How am I going to look good? And so basically it's about building rapport. You, you've got to get into a situation where in a very short period of time, they feel so comfortable uh, with you, I'll give an example. In the kitchens one, I had people telling me about the next door neighbors that were having an affair, and no, nobody else knows. Don't tell anyone. Like, I know it's happening because I, and they're, they're literally telling me stuff about their lives. And people will commonly say to us, Oh man, I've, I've never told people this stuff before. It, it is confidential, right? And we go, Yeah, 100%. 100%. Everything we talked about today is fine. Because if you put people in a space where they feel comfortable, people are desperate to be heard. Mm. They're desperate to just talk and have a voice and somebody to be really deeply interested in them. Like really interesting. What's your opinion? You know, how did you, how did you feel when that happened? Or, you know, just questions like that, which really tease out of people, you know, the, that subconscious side of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in terms of a blueprint, there is no blueprint. Like I couldn't say to Joe, Hey Joey, let me teach you how to do like, we've, we've had several people. It's the what 13th of the month, brand new year. We've already had several people say, can I buy a license to do what you do? Mm -hmm. Can I, do you do a course? Can we come and do it? And the answer is no. Uh, I'm not saying no in the future because Josh is uh, a complete brain on legs and he's trying to figure <laughs> out things like AI and stuff like that and how in the future we may be able to 
take what we do and overlay it with that stuff. I don't think it's ever going to replace it, but um, do it that way. So I, I'm sorry I can't say, hey, here's the blueprint profile. Here's the questions. I must have a thousand questions inside my head. Yeah, well, and I think that's that's the big takeaway for me is that you and your team are so well-trained in doing the heavy lifting on this. Because even if, the way that I'm viewing this is even if my team could do some of this research ourselves, we don't have the experience and the background that you have to take people at more than, you know, face value of the words that are coming out of their mouth. And can you just talk a little bit about when people do work with you, how this tends to work? Like, would, would you help me identify the, the main number of clients who would be good fits and then you would reach out to them for interviews or... I would reach out to them to get interviews and introduce them to you. Yeah. So how does that typically um, work? Again, it's a super simple thing. I, I think you and I talked about this at the front end. We must have the simplest business in the world, but it, it, it's like one of the most complicated businesses at exactly the same time sure. because you're dealing with the human mind and, and yeah. you're trying to zero in on one statement as a result of all that work to come up with something which is going to go boom and make things pop. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the question of, what is what are six best customers, clients, patients, members? What are they? What the heck does that mean? Yeah. And a lot of people will naturally jump towards, uh, hey, it's revenue. Who gave me the most money last year? Like, I want more of them. We're, we're more interested in who makes your business good. Like, yeah. who do your staff like working with and bring in the most money and give you the most referrals and are the most respectful to, you know, the receptionist, whatever that situation is. And people are scared to do that. They don't believe that it's possible to go to the marketplace and just find those customers. So they accept things. They tolerate things. We're very sort of, we'll spend time with people, probably more time than they expect, getting to who should those six people be? Because we can get you more of them, but we've got to get really exact on who they are at the moment. It's and really so it's not about revenue. It's more about finding a mix of you know what what really works for the business and also looking to the future what do you want to have more of in the future or less of and are you changing direction or that kind of thing so the market's a bit fluid nowadays right yeah i mean this seems like it takes that idea of build a niched client avatar off of your best client to a whole other level and says how can we really get clarity on what that even means in terms of a best client and then once we identify it how can we Instead of just kind of pulling, oh, this is what they look like. So let's find other people that look like them. It's taking other steps in that direction of how can we unpack what was really behind their decision to work with yeah. us? Yeah. It's really interesting because Josh and I will have a conversation later and say, were these six people all separated at birth? Like, mm. were they like, what do they call it? Six babies, six, six triplets or something? I don't know. But like, they must have known each other from birth because they all think the same. That they always has to happen. Exactly. And it's it's uncanny, the similarities between those people. And it is another interesting thing, Joy. You probably want to wrap things, but here's just a tiny thing, which I think is super relevant for people to understand. Pick CP firms, similar size, similar town, even location. Mm. There, that's me statement will be that completely different. Mm. Still CPA services. But think about one's got one culture, one's got another culture. One's got a different vision. One's, they are entities. They're not just bricks and mortar and things. And that's what people try and do. They just try to project out, hey, we're CPAs or we're, you know, we're an auto dealership or whatever. But a business is a reflection of, of the person that started it and owns it and runs it. It 
that thread follows through to how they decide their colleagues should be within the business and, and on all that kind of thing. So, and that's attractive to different people. So the six best over there might be completely different than the six best over there. And consequently, the that's me statement will be entirely different. Oh, that's a great point too. Really, really well said, John. Well, unfortunately, we do have to wrap things up, but man, this was a, a really deep episode. I'm so thankful. And again, anybody who was watching this on the or listening to this on the podcast, uh, we'll make sure that we have a link for you in the show notes so that you can watch the video because that visual breakdown that John did was great. Josh says, no more getting funnel hacked. Uh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we can end there too, because John, I know that you and Josh run a pretty no funnel business. Can you just talk a little bit about your your philosophy around that? Because I, I'm really digging how you guys are building out your business. Yeah, so we don't have a funnel. I was saying before, I think I've got like 15 contacts on LinkedIn or and something. Not for, not for lack of understanding, because I know oh, no, no. you know I, I how to funnels, do that stuff. I built some major funnels using Click. Yeah. We won awards for some of the funnels we built in the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most outrageous market of the year with one of my clients. We, we picked that one up a couple of years ago. So, like, we know how to do all that stuff. We don't have a funnel ourselves. It's, it's very flat. All our business comes from people finding out about what we do and then wanting to engage us in a proper conversation. So there is no sales process. Like, you We've basically explained today what we do. Basically, the next stage is tell us all about your business. Tell us about why you think this might be a good fit. Tell us about what you would do if you could clone your existing best customers. What would that mean to the business? And, and so we're more interested in the mechanics of why are we going to do what we're doing here? Is, is there a really good fit? Without sounding all woo-woo, but you're not going to misuse this, are you? We, we want to work with really solid, straight-up people. Yeah. Who are going to take this and 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 you know turn it to you know to good and all that kind of thing? So the original funnel, we 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 have a page, <laughs> RhodesWilliamson.com, if I'm allowed to say that. Sure. And when you get sure. there, it basically just says, Hey, you know, here's our calendar. You want to hook up and have a chat because you found out about us anyway, so it's not like you need to know what we do. That's it. So most of our business comes from introductions and referrals mm -hmm. off people. And this year we've got a particular drive again, if I can just say this out loud, for being introduced and working with uh, private equity companies. Okay. We see there's a massive opportunity for the guys that want to, we're looking for and trying to generate exponential growth in a, in a given time period, that this could be a key elemental part of that process, enabling them to um, you know, pick up a company, go in, short, sharp intervention, doing what we do, and immediately give them some some indicators in the market as to, as to what that business potential and, and could be in the future. So, sorry, that was just like a mini advert. If anybody knows any PE people out there, uh, we'd love to meet them. Let's help these guys out, you guys. No, I appreciate it. John, this was such a, a really, really interesting interview. I'm so, so glad that we got connected. I think it was uh, Jeff that connected our worlds. Hawaiian Jeff. Oh, he's the man. Well, thank you so much. I'll do it for this week. John, you stick around. I'll end the, the live video here. But everyone, have a great week. I'll see you next time. Thanks, Joey. Thanks, everyone. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Business Growth Advantage with me, Joey C. Vitale. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see y'all next week. Learn